Okay, cool. So let's get started. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna start off by sharing my screen. Um, if you're listening at home or to the recording after, don't worry. I'm just typing out what I'm saying. Uh, yeah. So the characteristics I want to list out about Hamza's speaking, especially his whips, is that they're very persuasive. And that's the fundamental thing that is very good about them, is the fact that they are persuasive. So I've studied a few of his rounds, um, particularly uh, round one and round three from the, from the round robin. Um, I'm going to go over what exactly he does, uh, like broadly, and then we'll study those two kind of rounds together and I'll point out where the important things to take away are. So the basic structure goes as following, and I think some of it is mentioned. Um, some of it is mentioned in some seminars that he has done, but I think it's a little bit unclear what exactly he is doing. Um, and then, uh, so this will hopefully clarify it. The first thing is, I don't know if this is the most important part to replicate, but he always, at least to what I've seen, has some kind of charismatic intro. And I think that's honestly useful to get the judge, especially in in-rounds, to like listen to you and like really pay attention or like at least like you at the start. So that's the first thing that he almost always um, includes. That's the first, oops. That's the first thing. Um, and we'll go over what both of those are uh, in both of the speech studies. Uh, and then what happens after are the important things. So the first thing that he does to lead off his case is he will always rebuild and add, or not always, but like a lot of the time, okay, here's what he always does, right? It, maybe not in this order, but the vast majority of the time in the start of his speeches, he will accomplish two things for the first part of the speech. One, rebuild uh, any criticisms, rebuild against any criticisms levied against his team or his extension pretty much. That's the first thing that he almost always does. And probably even more important than that is that he adds and advances the impact of their case. So uh, advance the impact of their case. So either by making it more illustrative, making it more clear, or, um, or just actually adding more impacts. That's something that he very often does in the start of uh, his speech. What he also does uh, well in, in the start of his speeches is he also makes sure to explain what the implication of those impacts are. So it's not just saying that this will help people or this will reduce poverty or whatever. It is then explaining what the significance in the debate is, um, which is one thing that obviously whips is supposed to do, right? Uh, what um, effect this impact has in the debate. Those are the central two things that he always does to lead off um, his speech. So if you take away nothing from this, it's that the whip speeches are supposed to be convincing the judge that your team wins. And doing these few particular strategically valuable things 
are really valuable, especially when you can add in and actually explain what the effect in the debate is. I think for high school BP, this is slightly less strategic to do because you have less time. However, I think it is still a good idea. I think oftentimes the strongest whip speeches are the ones that can stay consistent and stay consistent with their partner and can clearly advance what the idea of your case actually was um, and make it very clear what the case actually was. Those are both being able to do that is very, very important. Um, and it might honestly be better in five minutes because people don't have enough time to do everything, right? So these are the first two things that he generally does. And the rest of it is a lot more, a, a lot more standard. So the next things that happen, um, I don't think I need to explain the rebuilding that much, right? Like in any case where his extension is clarified or uh, in any case where his extension is, uh, sorry, not clarified, criticized, he will basically rebuild all, he will rebuild uh, against all the, all the strong, every single strong line that is set against their extension because those have to be preserved. So what often happens at the end of the debate is that he'll have a very intact extension, right? Um, so that's important to do. So then the next things that he does are the following. I haven't analyzed exactly which order. Actually, no, I do know the, the order that he, he does this. Basically, he begins by refuting the most important idea out of the, out of the other side. That is typically how it is organized. Either it is the most important idea or just the first idea that comes out. Um, but let, let's go with he refutes the most important idea um, that usually comes out of opening because opening usually does a bit better than closing, um, but it's not always the case. So he'll usually deal with the, uh, and like refute, when I say deal with, refute the strongest uh, idea out of uh, the other side's opening or just the strongest idea um, in general. I'm not, I haven't analyzed exactly how he does this, but he'll, for the time being, refute the strongest idea out of the opening opposition side. And a few things to note about exactly how he does this and a few of the techniques that he uses is firstly, after pieces of extension and after he especially deals with the brunt of opening whatever, opening government or opening op from his whip, is that he will clearly illustrate what happens on each side illustrate what happens on each side and the way that he does that we'll see in our study here but what you want to pay attention to is that he does clearly illustrate what happens on uh, what happens on each side and he'll kind of make it very clear what the difference between the sides are differences between the sides are. So another thing that he does when he is refuting uh, the strongest things out of uh, each side is that I think more so than uh, any other uh, any other debaters is that he will not be afraid to simply counter assert and uh and re-illustrate that's not to say that he doesn't logically deal with other people's 
arguments, but he'll usually do, he'll usually actually have multiple layers. And this will be one of the layers that um, he actually begins with, uh, is that he'll counter illustrate and counter assert, sorry, and re illustrate um, what the argument uh, actually looks like. So he'll, for example, try to directly flip it and then explain why the characterization is wrong or and re illustrate what the side is probably claiming um, in a way that is easier to deal with, but also points out the flaws in the argumentation. So those are the few kind of techniques that you can look out for. The second thing, uh, the second thing is he also engages with, well, he just, he just engages with uh, the, the second team, right? So he'll then engage with CG. So refute um, strongest idea out of CG. And this is, this doesn't necessarily go under this section, but um, he's always very clear to point out what things are the same on both sides. I think both of the web speeches I watched, he was very, very clear in pointing out what is, uh, what is symmetric. So clearly point out exactly what is symmetric on each side. That's the first thing. The second thing is that he also does a strong job of mitigating, uh, mitigating, uh, mitigating arguments. Obviously, um, everyone mitigates arguments when you refute somebody. However, however, what is probably a little bit different is that I think he also has a focus on casting doubt on the very applicability of the argument. So uh, does comment on applicability of argument. So usually it's not, uh, us usually it will, they will both, uh, Hamza will both mitigate what the effect of their case is, obviously, but uh, then he'll also mitigate what the applicability is. Um, and we'll see that in one of the examples very clearly. Uh, I got a question, which is, does Hamza do themes? Usually, no. Like, he'll be clear about what teams address or, like, what is coming out of each team. But the way it is centrally organized is often not through themes. It, it, it kind of comes off as being similar to themes uh, because he is talking about the themes and that how, that's how he organizes his, his thoughts. But it is not essentially organized as themes. And as debate gets really good, those things kind of merge together. Like you could interpret it as themes and if you just call it something different um, and, or, and view it through that lens, you can literally see it as themes. But I'll, I'll, the reason why I understand it as this is because, well, I can't understand it as this and I can explain it to you like this as well. Um, uh, additionally, one more thing he does is make sure you address framing. Uh, address framing. This is something that he very consistently does. Any framing that could be damage, uh, damaging to case uh, is very, very clear about explaining why. Um, yeah, so that's the basics of it. That's pretty much all it is. Um, all he really does is have a charismatic intro, advance the impact of their debate, uh, of their, of their team, Team, of their team first and foremost rebuild against any criticisms in this order 
um, and then uh, refute the main ideas out of the other side. That is basically what happens. It, it is not that much more complex than this, but obviously the execute and execution is interesting. So that's what we're going to go over. If any of you want to look over the doc, um, I'll include it here and also in the show notes. Uh, I would recommend that you actually look at it while um, we're going through each of these, these speeches because I will have a different piece of paper in front. The first one we're going to go over is round one, room B. I want to keep this relatively short. Uh, Hamza is the op whip. Uh, Hamza is the op whip. I will be pausing throughout uh, because honestly, I even I had to watch this about twice to break, be able to break down exactly what he is doing. I'll be pausing quite a bit. I want to point out where he does each of the things that I've identified and kind of point out where certain parts are particularly effective. Um, if you can't hear this, let me know. But um, yeah, I'll give you a bit of the context for this first. Uh, the motion is, as a, as a successful charity making the world better, this house would reject donations from immoral actors. What has so far happened in the debate is that OG has made a case about why this is uh, just immoral, like straight up just immoral. And that's their whole case. O is like, we're able to use this money to do things with it. Um, CG is like, well, this probably influences your behavior and it probably, uh, it probably cleanses their conscience and cleanses their image, which is bad because that helps bad people. So that is what has happened so far, and that is the context that you should need to, to view this whip. And then their case is a fewfold. Um, I'll just briefly summarize it, but as, as you will see, he does a very good job of summarizing it himself, especially the important parts. But the important parts of the case are first and foremost that um, are, 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 first and, are first and foremost that um, it is relatively. Yeah, so no one's opinion actually changes on people, uh, and then they have pretty good intuition pumps for what that is, and then they explain why they can actually change immoral actors by allowing them to donate to your charity, and they explain why the alternative isn't that they just go to another charity, why it's a lot worse than that, and they also explain why, uh, and they also explain why rejecting it or rejecting the donations from these immoral actors probably flip them to be actively dismantling or actively harmful towards your cause. So that's the biggest, those are the biggest things to take away. Let's begin by watching this. incredibly cynical about human nature. I also found them to be fantastically privileged. I'm going to show you evidence of that which runs throughout government benches line. Before that, four takeaways from what Aditya said. Yeah, four takeaways from what, from what Aditya said. He is going to uh, not just repeat what he said, um, he's going to actually do more and make what Aditya said better. So, 
Yeah, let's go. Number one, immoral actors are surrounded by immoral communities. This is important for two reasons. One, if you swing... And then he explains the implication of everything that he says. ...the donor, you might swing the person. So if the Koch brothers, once in a year, once in a decade, decide to give to a good charity, that has signaling effects because the Koch brothers speak at CPAC, they're on Fox News, all of that stuff. But secondly, an important... So this advances an impact that they didn't very clearly make out of extension. He explains that you can, uh, the way, the specific ways that you can illustrate how change actually happens is by changing one individual company, you can change multiple people within those spheres or multiple companies whenever you frame this argument in the context of taking money versus not taking money the correct framing is with us or against us this is the critical framing that closing opposition brought which is that when you deny these people when you deny epstein when you deny the Koch brothers you set up an adversarial attitude you give them incentives to actively oppose you so this is a re-clarification of what has been said uh, already in extension. Number three, it legitimizes the truth that these charities are leftist, cancel culture, loving propaganda outfits. What that means is that people stop giving money to them because suddenly anyone who- This is briefly mentioned, but this is being explained probably in more, it's in more detail right here, right now. Done anything immoral is gonna go off on them. Imagine Tucker Carlson's take on what- This is- a clear what he's doing right here is he's giving a clear implication of what something that of one piece of their extension government is doing right like suddenly donations start going down but it's all about well 10 years ago you did xyz so suddenly you can't donate anymore how does that perception interplay with the net of donations you get is important but finally on ceo Aditya said that the pathway forward towards transformative change is structural change, not the amount of money that you get. I'm going to show you exactly how we get that money. Firstly, quickly on closing government. The first thing I want to point out, and this is a weird inconsistency with opening government as well, is what sort of actors are you crowding out? Think about it. Okay, so he's dealing with the crowding out argument out of opening government very clearly. We say that if you don't have these guys in, they're probably going to put, put their name on a museum or build like that stupid scissors culture outside. Or you know what? <laughs> Worst case, what they're going to do is they're going to set up an astroturf organization which opposes the same aims you have. Think of the National Resource Defense Council, which is run by big oil. Think of a host of organizations such as the, such as the National Food Council, which is run by big beverages, right? So they set up organizations which actively oppose you. But secondarily... And... Uh, so this was lightly justified in the extension speech. He does not add any more mechanisms for it. He just adds more illustrations and more examples to make it even more believable. What happens on our side, and this is closing government extension, you crowd out moral actors, such as government people, people who want to give money. One, if I want to dedicate my life to climate change, Epstein donating to it isn't going to stop me. I'm still probably going to give the money to the charity. But two, worse. So this is just an illustration and intuition pump against the CG case into an extension OG, or mostly CG. They stop giving the money to that charity. They set up another charity, right? So our crowd out is positive because that money still goes to good places. This is why I don't get their argument because our crowd out is the government's not going to be like, all right, folks, I guess we have a billion dollars left that we were supposed to give to them. That goes to like pool parties. Like, like that money is still going to go. So here he points out why yeah here he points out 
why the alternative isn't what government actually sets it up to be and gives a funny but also rather intuitive response. Towards fundamentally good causes, which is why the crowd out argument doesn't make sense. Secondly, on closing government, this is and while he's explaining it, it's very clear what the differences between the sides are because of the language that he's using and how clear he is about the impacts. Intuition about successful versus unsuccessful charities. This is also interesting because on one hand they say, look guys, these charities would be fine without these immoral actors. They don't need this money at all. At the same time, the argument is these people can show that they redefined the objectives of this charity and did so much great work and transformed this charity. Only one of them can be true, right? Yeah, so conflicting characterizations out of Gov, clearly pointed out. Because in their response, they're acting like the immoral actors are dispensable, and in their argument, they're acting like the immoral actors are critical to the organization. It can only be one of those things. Finally, on closing government, honestly, does the rehabilitation of perception happen? One, what Aditya said, right? Like, you know, if you know someone's bad, that's the motion, that's not going to change. If you don't know someone's bad, that's not in the motion, that's also not going to change. But This is something that was that was said almost verbatim um, in the extension. He's just restating. Secondarily, additionally, what happens to donators who are from places like Pakistan, right? Like misogyny, let's just say, anti-Semitism, let's just say. What are your moral standards now is the question, right? It's not just that you're taking away money from people like Epstein. Thank you for giving us an example of, the, like you've redefined what extreme examples are, but think about the average Pakistani donor. Right, like this person being perfectly candid is probably going to be more misogynistic than a charity is going to be comfortable with, more anti-Semitic than the average charity is comfortable with. So what you're also doing is you're locking out marginalized communities from donating and from shedding light on these issues because these Western standards of what is moral and immoral aren't held up in those places. Having taken out their extension, I'm not going to talk about... Yep, so he that actually flips the claim about good actors or decent actors or like decent change. Someone... Any, like a judge probably wouldn't see this as a bad donation, right? Yeah, even by government standards, but it's clear that this would probably be something that would be rejected. Opening government. First, the principle. Morality of whom is what I ask. Because that's... They're now responding to the idea out of open government on morality. He's leaving it to the end because it's probably the least important thing in the debate. Flip the Epstein question. Instead of saying, should a charity accept money from Epstein? Let me ask you, should an Afghan woman accept money from Epstein? Right, like this is- Right, so this is an example illustration response, not, and the logical response comes after. So what you can see here is that the illustrations come first and then the analysis comes after, not the other way around. Because if you understand the illustration, then the response makes a lot more sense after that, after the fact, this is also funny enough, similar effect that like Johnny Harris or Jake Tran use in the documentary because it's a lot easier to understand. And I and Hamza does it really well in, in, in the art of persuasion. This is the correct way to think about this because the model referred object here is the person being helped as opposed to the charity doing the money. The charity is just a middleman here. So, and I, my answer is 100% yes. If that money gets you across the border to Pakistan and saves your life, I would take that money from Epstein every single day of the week. Fine. And that's what they're missing because their moral compass is tethered to the organization as opposed to the deferred object of the organization. People get into charities to help people. Doing charity is instrumental towards an outcome, which is helping people, and that's the moral compass that we should be using. Final point of the principle. Moral in terms of what? 
Right? Because they have this interesting example where they like, what if person who did action X in immoral space does moral action in the same space? No. What about someone who's a homophobe who goes gives to climate change, right? That's the sort of examples that we're talking about. Because often what you do is you universalize moral actions, and then you cancel these people out of those structures first, OG then C D. That is just a quick reframing of what you believe the vast majority of cases to be. Um, it's purely mitigatory, but is effective nonetheless. Why would immoral actors directly go against uh, charities that reject them, especially like Exxon movie? Why would they take an anti So here she's just running out of time to take POI, so he just takes two in a row. It's short circuits itself. If people are interested in charity, they'll be doing that charity. If you're Pakistani, you'll move to a Pakistani charity. My yeah. question is just like, why would you not like just get to an alternative charity as opposed to just one big one? If you're okay, brilliant. First on the question, first on the question, you can you repeat yours, by the way? Why would they directly go against a charity organization? Okay, I mean, you're going to go against a charity because it's public now that Greenpeace says, I'm not going to take the money from ExxonMobil to use James' fantastic phrasing, fuck off. So when that happens, obviously you're going to go against them because now it's a question of public perception survival, right? So you've created the incentive structure to do the thing that you wanted to prevent them from doing in the first place. Finally, on your POI, yes, obviously they can give to an alternative charity, but in this model, successful charities can't take this money, right? So they can only set up their own foundations, their own initiatives, their own institutes to funnel that money, because your motion literally locks them out of the alternative charities that you're talking about. Finally, I think it's also important to talk about liberal actors. I think liberal actors are likely to donate in the vast majority of cases independent of competing considerations. Right? This is why Congress is screwed, because the progressives will vote for good things anyway, and the conservatives are going to blockade everything. It's the same thing in charities, where just because you have more conservative actors coming in doesn't necessarily mean that you reduce uh, that you reduce liberal donations, but at the same time, conservative actors are much more likely to lock themselves out because they already have such high startup costs in donating in the first place. So if you want to protect people who get those donations, and you want to swing the people who are already tenuously moral, as opposed to the people who are solidly moral. Panel, the pathway towards transformative change is structural. You do not get that if you try to cancel anyone who tries to make a change. Thank you. Good Well, yeah, so I hope you we're able to see how he does all of these things. Um, yeah, pretty much exactly like this, right? Okay, let's go on to the second one. Um, if there, are, yeah, let's go on to the second. I don't, I don't think I'm really gonna take questions because, like, I'm just giving, I'm just analyzing how he does it. This is like kind of a group. Um, but like, if you have any questions, I can answer to the best of my ability. And if you have a question, it should probably be about how you should apply to this in your own speech anyway. Airplane. They do not trust me to fly an airplane, but they trust me to pick a pilot. They do not trust me to have empathy for people in a referendum. I forgot to give the context. The motion is, this house will require laws that curtail individual freedom under the pretext of public health, e.g. vaccination requirements, mask mandates, lockdowns, to be confirmed by referendum. Uh, want to think about that for a second, go for it. But um, the, the context of what has happened so far in the round is that opening government uh, gives a relatively compelling case about why exactly this is or democratic, why this is likely to lead to better outcomes. Um, and then uh, opening opposition gives a case about 
why this is not super feasible or why doing this would be relatively bad because it'd be expensive you can't change to you can't edit to you can't edit your ref or your public health policy without having another referendum uh and saying and requiring a referendum that could possibly deny public health curtails is really bad because what you're sacrificing is people's lives and that's more important than people not wearing a mask or people being able to not wear a mask um and then uh what the government or the what the closing government team thing is about is i'm just let me just watch the top of this again that the only issue on the ballot is COVID. This is nonsensical, this is absurdist, and this is just not empirically true. The extension from our case is going to be absurdly simple. Why? You actually do have buy-in. Why the only way to get sustained- Right, yeah. Why you're able to get more buy-in in the long term, especially being comparative, when you have a referendum. Why that creates more buy-in, why that's good. Okay, let's watch this one. They do not trust me to fly an airplane, but they trust me to pick a pilot. They do not trust me to have empathy for people in a referendum, but they trust me to have empathy for people in an election on several more issues. Yeah, things like that. Uh yeah, so brief rhetorical intro points out the differences between the two teams and why they should beat them. Um, the point here is that it's completely symmetric on both sides insofar as the capture of democratic opinion is concerned. We completely agree democracy is a fundamentally imperfect process. The question then becomes how do you best capture democratic opinion while guaranteeing public health outcomes? That's what I attempt to prove to you. The first thing that I want to say there is that elections, as Aditya says, are institutionally flawed. So for instance, the Electoral College systematically locks out several people from having their voices represented. The first-past-the-post system in the United Kingdom and many democracies in Europe systematically locks out people who voted for 30% of the vote share as opposed to just 31%. It's crazy things like these in elections which mean that you never get your democratic preference satisfied as opposition bench <laughs> wants them to. So this is actually just dealing with the main idea of opposition. Um, yeah, I'm sure he's going to go into what the max and impacts that were important from his side were. Number two, apart from it being institutionally invalid, there's also a host of different issues that are at play. I agree that the pandemic was probably on a bunch of people's mind in November 2020. I think the point that Aditya was making was that 40% of people- Right, yeah, and this is to address some of the criticisms from the other side, uh, is actually the, the point of both of these two things, actually. So, never mind, it lines in with his normal structure in America will never vote for any other party but the Republican Party because of abortion, right? Like, that's just realistically the case. So the issue here is that you're supposed to aggregate the preferences of everything you want to do in... So the illustration is what he gives first, and then now he's giving the analysis after. ...to one vote. And that's a really difficult thing to do during a crisis. Hence, a second reason why elections are not a great way to provide accountability in the context of a pandemic crisis. These two reasons mean that insofar as opposition benches claim is concerned about accountable policy, and insofar as that's a metric of good policy, they do not have accountability. The second way that you can gauge democratic opinion is how many people are talked about outside elections and referenda. 
What we said to you was, when you have a protest outside the White House, it's a hundred thousand people. Right, so this is one of the problems they point out of what exists and that they solve. So he's re-emphasizing what exactly the problem is, um, and you can listen to what exactly the problem is now. When you have a poll, statistically it tends to be 10 to about 25,000 people who are in any given poll. What that means is that in normal routine times, because elections happen at longer time intervals, the opinion that's been captured is a very minute representation of the general democratic policy. This is the second reason that Aditya gave you, that all captures of other public opinion outside elections tend to be anti-democratic. So we need something that's speedier, we need something that's faster, and we need something that's more consistent. Right, so the comparative was mentioned in Aditya's speech, which is basically that protests are the only other way to communicate things during non-election times. Protests are, tend to be very vocal minorities, and they tend to be not representative of what people want, but governments are afraid of not accruing to what protesters want, so they give in to those things a lot of time anyway. These three reasons show to you that on the democratic end, it's better to capture opinion in that sense. The second thing I'm going to do is devote the rest of my speech to showing you how public health surveillance is better for closing government's work. Before I do that, I would love to engage with the DOI. Okay, even if 40% of people vote Republican regardless, politicians are still scared that 10% of those people will see their immunocompromised cousin die in the next two years, and then that might be the voting issue for them. It doesn't even have to be, it just might be, and they make better decisions because it probably will be. This, this, this is a broader question, right? Because there's this thing called like the Admiral Limit Consensus, which just means voters make stupid decisions because they're individual people. I just don't think that's the case, right? Like if you historically look at referenda, like people were against the Vietnam War more or less two years after it started. Look at the war in Iraq. Like I just think people make individually very empathetic decisions because people, just because one person is one person doesn't mean they make a decision for one person, right? They're making decisions for their families. They're making decisions for the people they work with. They're making decisions for their communities because no man is an island. So a lot of these decisions are an aggregation of preferences. Every single person who votes for someone is thinking that they're voting for everyone. So I think what this point in assumes and what the opposition bench case broadly assumes is that just because it's one person means that they're literally only voting for their self-interest, which I think is a silly way to think about the expression of democratic opinion. On public health One thing I'll also briefly say is Hamza really, really thoroughly engages with POIs. And I know he has to because of the structure, but I think that it's also a very strategically good thing to do because what their other side is saying when they give you a POI is they're saying what they think to be the strongest part of their case or the biggest flaw in your case. So no matter what that is, you want to address that rather thoroughly. And he does that all of the time. He clearly addresses the core root of the issue of what exactly the POI was, does not dismiss it, and then flips it and explains why it is better on their side. And send four points. The first thing I want to say is about public stamina that they have brought up because this is mission critical. The issue right now is that you can. He is still at this point impacting the importance of the case, adding more impacts and illustrations. Not get public health surveillance which has continuity or sustenance or sustenance because what happens is you have one lockdown, people are like, we've had enough, we don't want this anymore. What changes now is people own their decision. People voted for this power to be given to this government for this time interval, whether it's a year or a couple of years. What that means is that the government has policy space. They have more and more time to sustain that policy making. Because I agree with closing opposition. The only thing worse than no lockdowns is one lockdown and then doing nothing again, right? What we want to do is give the government that policy continuity. Note, 
they don't get that because of their electoral claim, right? Precisely for the reasons that they would vote against a referendum are the reasons that they would vote against them in the election. So presumably the cases that we're talking about are somewhere in the middle. And there, I think, giving people a voice is what allows them to have that stamina in the first place. Before I deal with the other three reasons why we get better public health outcomes, closing opposition. So it doesn't seem independently that strong. It helps it a little bit um, by clarifying that this is about public stamina and then the next three things too. So you're taking away anything. It's how thoroughly he is adding impacting to their, to their team's case for how long he does it in a speech and obviously integrates things about other teams. Um, but deals with the main criticisms first. Uh, I think I might have written it in the other order, but uh, maybe you can just switch, the, switch them, uh, wh whichever you prefer. Polling are, if polling is so unreliable, how can you be so sure that 68% of Californians, like you say, are going to vote to pass the referendum? Oh, no, no, I, I completely agree with you. But think of the counterfactual, right? Like, imagine <coughs> it electing a conservative candidate who never does anything during the pandemic. So that's the sort of point that we're trying to make. Because if you want to be fair about this debate, and we can have multiple referendums that we're supposed to, then presumably if we get a no in six months, and in six months we can have a referendum again. Whereas in your case, you can't, because you're stuck with one person for four or five years, no matter who they were, and no matter how bad they were. The entire point that we're trying to make is that you should be allowed to update your democratic opinion insofar as your personal situation is concerned because referenda is rapidity, referenda is response in a way that elections can't be because elections by their own terms are fundamentally retrospective, which I think is really important. Three additional reasons here. Number one, you politically educate yourself on the issues. Yeah, you have two weeks. That's two weeks more than you're getting in their world, right? So if a referendum is going to come up, you are realistically going to think about what the pandemic is about. Compare this to an election, because you're also looking at the interest rate, you're also looking at the economy, you're also looking at jobs. You're looking at a host of different issues to educate yourself in, but here you can hone your educational capacity towards specifically and only looking at the pandemic. Now so in this case, he's flipping a mechanism about education. Uh, so government made a claim about why education around a referendum is going to be worse because the time frame is shorter, but he's effectively trying to flip it um, and explaining why it actually is better on their side and making Number three, you get public health outcomes which are better because the right is not ideological. It's not like Ted Cruz grew up hating a mask, right? Like the issue here is that Ted Cruz thinks that's going to win him an election. Look at what happened with the Labour Party in Brexit. The Labour Party has gone pretty silent on Brexit now because for better or for worse, the Democratic coalition voted for it. That's what they wanted Republicans in the context of public health surveillance. If the referendum is one, the right will update its opinion because it's so clear in an institutional referenda that that's what the broader public wants. That's how we get better policy. Panel, how much time do I have? 6.50. Oh, amazing. Panel, look, this should say debate society instead of investment club. I'm going to end with that, but like, thank you for listening. Well, yeah, and that was the last piece of uh, of two whips that we study. Yeah, uh, like some, you have your intro, it helps, it's probably a good thing to do. Then you want to be clear in advancing all of the impacts and re-illustrate, like adding more illustration, adding more impact um, to the important parts of your case. I think you can honestly combine like this and rebuilding against criticisms can take up two and a half minutes of your case and you're fine because then you have one minute and a bit to deal with the strongest ideas out of opening out of the closing um and then making sure you incorporate where your team lies against them uh on that basis so take away some of the specific skills but take to take away from the structure is just make sure you advance what the impact of your team is more i think 
that is what helps you win the most and that is what is able to stand out in the judge's mind when you're actually being weighed against the other teams that's the biggest thing to take away i think i see that very very seldom in the high school circuit right now and if you're working on your whips i would try practicing it because i think it's a very good strategy any questions you can type them in chat or just should i really be comparative in my yes you don't have to ask questions just have just ask questions like close the recording you have real questions how do i fit my partner's extension into my speech how do i really fit my partner's extension so yeah you you want to examine the conclusions of your partner's speech and then add to them at the start of your speech and then tell me tell the judge what the implications of those impacts are so you don't need to fit the whole extension to your speech like he doesn't he only rebuilds mechanisms where they're weak or they need rebuilding but otherwise he's dumping stuff into impacts and illustration to make it more clear and more important um how do i make intros more charismatic you just have to practice that um yeah watch other charismatic intros uh how do you advance impacts yeah so basically what he's actually if you look at what he's actually doing he's not explaining why there's they're on a bigger scale He's adding more detail to them, and he is further illustrating them, is what he is doing. So yeah, that's a good question. He is, further, he is adding more detail to what exactly happens and providing like logically what happens, and then adding more illustrations. Uh, I don't see any other questions. Well, yeah, if there are other questions, just ask. Otherwise, uh... Yeah, that was a brief seminar on uh, studying Hamza's web speeches.